According to Ray Ortland in his very helpful commentary on the book of Isaiah, he identifies that the year of 410 AD is very relevant to the book of Isaiah. For those of you who are students of history, you'll know that 410 AD was the sacking of Rome by the Goths, and it was the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. Ortland says it was the end of an era, the end of security, the end of certainty. The world, it seemed, in that moment was falling apart. 410 shocked the people of Rome. Soon after the fall of Rome, a North African pastor named Augustine preached a sermon in which he called his congregation to think carefully about what was happening around them. Here's what he said. You are surprised that the world is losing its grip, that the world has grown old? Think of a man, he is born, he grows up, he becomes old. Old age has many complaints, coughing, shaking, failing eyesight, anxious, terribly tired. A man grows old, he's full of complaints. The world is old. It is full of pressing tribulations. Do not hold on to the old man, the world. Do not refuse to regain your youth in Christ, who says to you, the world is passing away, the world is losing its grip, the world is short of breath. Do not fear, your youth shall be renewed as an eagle. Augustine went on to write a seminal book called The City of God. This book wrestles with the concept of how do Christians live in an earthly kingdom while being spiritual citizens of another kingdom? And that tension is especially true and sharp when their citizenry as members of an earthly kingdom begins to be shaken. Augustine asks the question, which city do you really live for? The city of man or the city of God? The question, Which city do we live for could be put in Isaiah 26 through 29 in this way. Which city is your hope? Which city are you more emotionally connected to? Which citizenry is more emotionally effective in your heart and life? To be a citizen of God or a citizen of the world? The theme of the book of Isaiah, just to remind you, is Our God Saves. And the book, the long book, has three particular movements, turn, believe, and live. We're in this first section in turn. And just to remind you what the aim is of this section, it is for Isaiah to call God's people when the pressures of life are upon them, when they feel threatened from the outside, to ask themselves, turn from the things in which you trust and trust in the living God. Throughout the book of Isaiah, we see a constant flipping back and forth of the themes of judgment and mercy, judgment and mercy, and today we're going to see that inverted in regards to it being laid out this way, mercy and then judgment, or promises and then a caution. And the central theme for this book, or this, these three chapters, rather, for 26, 28, 29, 26, 27, 28, 29, four, there we go, got that. The central theme for these four chapters is this, be careful where you look for peace. And so one of the questions that I want you thinking through today is this, 
all of us are looking for peace. The question is, where do we go when we're afraid in order to find peace? I don't mean where do you know you should go. I mean, where do you really go? And that's what Isaiah presses into today. Where do you go when you long for peace? You're here today, some of you are Christians and some of you are not yet Christians. Every single one of us seeks after peace. Today we're gonna see in these chapters promises that God makes to his people as a target for their minds to be thinking about in terms of their peace. And then we're gonna see some cautions about the false peace that they can pursue. And it's remarkable how this book written in the Old Testament is so incredibly relevant even for where we live today. So here we are on a Sunday gathered together. We've had a week apart. We're regathering for the purpose of reminding ourselves of truths that are really important. Or maybe you could think of it this way, of reminding ourselves where do we find true peace? So first, promises. Central to the message of the gospel is that there is a future day when Christ is going to return. He's going to come and remove all sin from the world. He's going to create a home in the new heavens and the new earth of lasting and eternal peace. And while Christians may disagree on the timing of Christ's return, you cannot be a Christian and deny that there's a future plan of peace of Jesus returning connected to the new heavens and the new earth. So think of it this way, and this is really foundational and really important. The Christian life, church, is lived for the future in the present. The Christian life is lived for the future. I'm thinking about another kingdom. I serve another king. There's another realm that I live for that has marked me and shapes me and has changed me, but I still live in the real world. But when I live in the real world, I have that other realm in my mind and that's, that world affects me in this world. So the Christian life is lived for the future in the present. Or think of it this way, what is to come informs what is now. So what is to come informs what is now. So this concept of promise is connected to the phrase in that day. Look at your Bibles and let me show you four places where we see that phrase used. It's similar to words like day of the Lord. So in that day, chapter 26, verse one, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. Then look at chapter 27 and verse one. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. And then chapter 27 and verse six. In days to come, Jacob will take root. And then look at 27 and verse 12. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain. So. What, what Isaiah is doing is showing us another realm, another kingdom, something future that has implications for how we live right now. And to remind you what's happening in the context here is that the world of the people of God was unraveling with the threat of Assyria. 
It was a real threat, conquering Israel and beginning to make inroads into the country of Judah. And Isaiah is trying to encourage God's people to remain faithful by pointing them to a future day. And instead of using the imagery of a mountain like he has in the past, like in chapter 25, verses 6 and 10, now we see the image of a city. And again, there are so many parallels from Isaiah to the book of Revelation, because you'll know that in the book of Revelation, we see that New Jerusalem comes down, like it comes down as a city. And so here we are in chapter 26 and verse 1. He says, we have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Notice, this image is of a city, and the walls are salvation. In other words, the people, listen to this, who are dwelling inside the city of God are guarded by the grace of God. Think of that. The people living in the city of God, what is their protection? What is the thing that keeps all bad things out? What is the thing that defines the city? What defines it is the grace of God. The city is a a place of righteousness, verse 2. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may come in. So the idea is the gates are open and those nations that have embraced righteousness are inside the city gates. Verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So underneath this citadel of salvation is the issue that within the city of God are the people who have put their trust in God. So you need to know, church, that the peace of God and trusting in God are absolutely linked together. But the problem is that some of you think practically that you can't trust God until you have peace. And what Isaiah is saying is that actually oftentimes is reversed that peace is a product of trusting. Verse three connects the dots for us with an affirmation of having a mind that is stayed upon the Lord. So at one level, this is a future reference, but it shows us that there's a connection between peace and trust and the mind. So for those of you who are Christians, just consider this for a moment, how free your mind and heart are going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. Can you imagine waking up every single day and there's never a worry? There's never a fear. There's never a concern of anything going wrong. Every day is a perfect day over and over and over and over. I don't know if some of you have the same ailment that I do, but some mornings I wake up and I feel anxious immediately, almost inexplicably. I've actually changed my alarm because that's been helpful. If I have an alarm that goes like that, no wonder you're anxious when you first wake up, right? Now I got a kind of a nice and easy, you know, and that helps me a little bit, but I'm still anxious. And some mornings I wake up and I'm anxious and I don't even know why I'm anxious and I'm anxious that I'm anxious. So I start thinking, oh, there must be something to worry about. So I start going through all the things that I need to worry about because I have to find something to worry about. And if I can't find something to worry about, I end up worrying that I can't figure it out. I can't wait for the day when I wake up and I'll never have that emotion in my soul ever again. It's part of the glory of what it is to gather on Sunday mornings 
when the choir's singing that incredible song and you're hearing about God being omnipotent and mighty and victorious, it pushes out all other thoughts singularly in our focus is the glory and the holiness of God. That's why Sunday worship is so important for your soul. You need at least an hour a week where you just push out all of the thoughts and you rest in the goodness of God. So can I just ask you, Christian, what are you occupying your mind with right now? What are you thinking about? What are you researching? How much news and media are you consuming? For those of you who like to be informed, and I would be among them, you know there's something worse than not being informed? It's never having any peace. Some of us are so addicted to FOMO, and for those of you who are over 50, that means fear of missing out. (laughs) Some of us have such a case of FOMO that we are replacing our fear of missing out with what should be occupying the position of faith. Verses five and six says, God has power to make things right. Verse four, trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord is an everlasting rock, for he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. Some of you lack peace, to be very blunt, because you are looking for it in the wrong places. You want control, I get it. You wanna figure things out, I get it. But some of you have spent more time researching, scrolling through social media, watching your news, listening to your podcasts, and you have spent time in the Bible and you wonder why your heart is filled with anxiety. Isaiah calls the people of God to look for peace in their God and even in their future. And even while life is hard, he offers this promise to people who are struggling. And then verses 7 through 18, what's interesting here is he he puts a lament in the middle of these promises. Now, a lament is a prayer in pain that's supposed to lead us to trust. It's where God's people pour out their struggles. A third of the Psalms is this minor key song of sorrow where God's people are saying to God, this is hard. But you know why God's people lament? Because they believe in the promise. They know Jesus is coming again, and so they say to God, how about you come right now? This is really hard. Life is very difficult. And so look at this lament. In verses seven through nine, he he turns to God as an expression of his obedience as he calls God's people to wait for him. The path of your righteous, the path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In your path of your judgments, oh Lord, notice this, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. This is God's people. Like God, we're waiting on you. We see the prevailing threat of Assyria. We we see the difficulties in the world, and we are trying our hardest to wait for you. So just mark this down. To cling to God's promises means that we bounce back and forth from, God, I trust you, this is really hard. God, I trust you, this is really hard. Real Christians do both at the same time. Don't think that Christians never struggle with trusting. No, it's that Christians in their struggle to trust draw the right conclusion about trusting in God's promises. He complains in verses 10 through 11 that God 
and his activity are unseen by the unrighteous. He says, if favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly. He does not see the majesty of the Lord. Verse 11, O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. So then he, he prays, let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let fire for your adversaries consume them. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. So he walks through this, this, this heartfelt complaint. Skip all the way to verse 21. He says, for behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. In other words, God, you're gonna come back and make everything right. Now what's remarkable, church, is that Isaiah didn't see the full picture with the cross of Jesus Christ, and we who live on the other side of the cross know that God is amazingly, tenaciously powerful and has an incredible ability to make things that are wrong right. And if you need any other example than that, you should look to the cross of Jesus. For in a moment where it seemed as though everything had fallen apart, God was actually in the middle of bringing about the redemption of all who would place their trust in Jesus. Gary Smith, commentator about the book of Isaiah, says this about this lament. This lament serves as a good example to all believers, for it contains a healthy acceptance of present pain, a firm faith that God is teaching his people the ways of righteousness through it, a recognition that God is the only source of real peace, and a strong yearning to have deliverance from this severe trial. So what does that mean? It means that some of us are waiting for our circumstances to change before we end up embracing the peace that God intends to give us. And that's a mistake. What Isaiah is saying here is you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. In chapter 27 and verse one, we see another example of this promise that the Lord in that day with his hand and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan is a metaphor for all that is evil in the world, and the hope of this promise is that there's coming a day when all evil, all wicked desires, every wrong motivation will be wiped from the face of the earth, and sinful rebellion will no longer be with us. And God's going to do that. In verses 2 through 6, we see that God is going to nourish his people. He'd, notice he describes the people of God like a vine. We hear words of Jesus, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He, says, he describes them as a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. What's more, God will make his people to be righteous. Look at verse 9. Therefore, by this guilt, or by this, rather, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sins when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. No asherim or incense altars will remain standing. The idea here is that God is going to bring deliverance to the, his people. Verse 10, for the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness where the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches. 
And then skip to verse 12. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one. O people of Israel, in that day a great trumpet will be blown and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain of Jerusalem, or at Jerusalem. The idea is that God is gonna call his people back from their exile. So here we have a series of incredible promises, and these were designed to give God's people hope, that when the pressure was on, when the threats were around them, God offers to them these promises in order for them to think about and to meditate on so they would know what that world is like so they could live in this world, to live in the city of man while thinking about and living for the city of God. And what's remarkable about this text is that we who live in the New Testament times know the full story that God not only makes promises about the future but God also has made many of those promises already fulfilled in the person and work of Christ so there's an already not yet that we live in right now so that when we taste God's glory like when we're singing together and we're singing things like holy 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 is your name and your heart's like yeah I believe this, this is awesome. It's a foretaste that in the new heaven, the new earth, that's what you're gonna do over and over and over and over and over and you're never gonna go out and talk to an awkward person in the atrium again. Everyone's gonna be so emotionally intelligent, it's gonna be amazing. Every ounce of your small talk is gonna be substantive and meaningful and you're talking about important things and you're never gonna run into a, an angry, bitter person ever again. You're gonna say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord and you're gonna go out and hang out with people and it's all gonna be holy all day long. But in the interim, we need to be reminded what Jesus did for us. So here's just a few things from the New Testament. Jesus will one day defeat the devil once and for all, but even now he has dismissed and disarmed spiritual rulers and authorities. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, but even now we confess that our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3.20. We long for the new Jerusalem, but even now we endure hardship because here, Hebrews 13, 14 to 18, we have no lasting city. It means that we can hardly wait for the day when we will see Jesus face to face, but even now we're reminded he's the vine, we're the branches, and apart from him we can do nothing, John 15. It means that we long for the promises of God to be fulfilled, but even now we know that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. So these promises are meant not just to intrigue our minds about the future, they're meant to give us fuel for endurance right now. They invite us to find our peace in the right place, to discover our peace in the right person, the Prince of Peace. So let me just ask you again, where are you looking for peace? In whom or what are you placing your hope? What city are you really living for? What are you doing to push your heart and mind towards meditating, considering, and thinking about the promises of God? Isaiah says to us, be careful where you look for peace because these promises that God offers you are stunning and glorious and these are the things that should occupy our minds and our hearts. Some of you have battled anxiety all week and the reason you have is because you've thought about everything but God. 
promises, cautions. In chapters 28 and 29, we're gonna spend less time on this in our sermon because we've spent a lot of time on cautions already, but in these chapters, we, we, we see the warnings. At this moment in Israel and Judah's history, there was a very practical application of this concept of peace because Assyria was a threat and their temptation very practically was, let's develop a political alliance with Egypt for our own safety. And we're gonna see this again in Isaiah 31 where Isaiah warns them, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And so we see in chapter 28 the word ah. Ah, it's not a statement of satisfaction, it's a statement of woe. Or in your texting conversation, it's the word ugh. So you could read it this way, ugh, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Notice the fading flower of its glorious beauty. The idea here in verses one to six is that Isaiah speaks to the people of Samaria or Ephraim about finding their peace in their own success. Their self-sufficient pride is in view here. So they're, they're, they're described as a fading flower. They're described as drunks in verse one. The coming judgment in verse two is like a a, a violent storm and they're gonna be picked off like the first fruit of a tree. And yet, look at verses five and six, God is still gonna be gracious to them. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Aren't you thankful that even in our pride and even in our self-sufficiency, God is still gracious to us? You know, sometimes we don't even realize how addicted we are to our own success until it's removed. We don't know how connected our emotional happiness is to our own ability to control our lives. And when that's taken away, we see ourselves for who we really are. In verses 7 through 22 of chapter 28, Isaiah turns his focus on Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is characterized by self-indulgence. Verses 7 and 8 pictures a society that is morally unraveling, including its spiritual leaders. We find here that the people are mocking Isaiah's warnings. They are accusing him of simplistic and elementary teaching, verses 9 and 10. Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. It's like someone saying, this is elementary stuff, Isaiah. Real intelligent people don't believe the things that you believe. Be prepared. Be prepared for the accusation that you're so naive and backward, that you think you're saved because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago and he's gonna return and deliver you from your sins? Yeah, I believe that because it's in the Bible. The society and culture around you is going to say continually, and it has throughout the history of the world, that is simplistic, that's foolishness. It's not intelligent. The Apostle Paul tells us that God confounds the wisdom of the wise. In verses 14 and 15, we find that the people of God are putting their trust in man-made covenants, which Isaiah says they're covenants of death. 
We're putting our trust in the things that we make, our own ways to try and protect ourselves. And the effect of that is there's no peace there. Some of us are so busy trying to protect ourselves and we have no peace because the fact of the matter is as good and right at one level as those covenants may be or the things that we're trying to do are, they can so quickly become the means by which we're guilty of idolatry. And yet notice God still offers grace. Look at at verse 14. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, you who rule the people in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and we, with Sheol, we have made an agreement. Look at verse 16. Therefore, says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Of course you know this cornerstone is none other than Christ. And what Isaiah is prefiguring here is out of your self-indulgence and your self-sufficiency and your trusting in yourself, he's he's offering you to, to come to him and in the New Testament terms to come to Jesus. If you skip ahead to verse 28 and 29, it says, does one crush grain for bread? No, No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cart and wheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. The idea is that God is is threshing the grain. He's throwing it up in the air in order for the chaff to be blown away. That describes some of your lives. God's taking you, he's throwing you up in the air and, and And not like it's a fun experience. It's a hard thing. You've been thrown up in the air. Or another way that it's talked about in Isaiah, as a a plow. Like a farmer, when he's tilling up the ground, he's putting his blade into the earth, and it's tilling it up. Some of you know exactly what that feels like. It's like God has taken the blade of hardship, and he's tilling the hardened ground of your heart. And can I remind you that the reason he does this in, is, is in order to plant seeds that are going to bear amazing spiritual fruit. We skip ahead to chapter 29. We see that the heart of God's people are far from him in verses 10 through 13. The Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep, has closed your eyes, covered your heads, and yet... In the midst of their hardness of heart and their spiritual blindness, God offers to them spiritual renewal. Skip ahead to verses 17 through 19. It is not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see, and the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. And then if you skip ahead to verses 22 to 24, we find this. Therefore, thus says the Lord God who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his faith grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, I will, they will sanctify my name, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. 
And those who murmur will accept instruction. Wow. What happens in that day, church, is God goes after his people and he changes their hearts so that their ears hear and their eyes see and mouths that used to murmur now bless him. And you need to know that Jesus, by his spirit, does that even now when we put our trust and faith in him. He changes you and rescues you, not just from your sin. Oh, yes, he does that. But he rescues you from the worst of you, which is every part of you apart from Jesus. So when life falls apart, our only hope is a true and lasting peace with the Prince of Peace. So let me give you three brief applications. Number one, oh, friends, Be careful where you look for peace. Be careful where you look for peace. There are many ways in which we try to regain control, many ways we try to achieve protection, or maybe we try to self-medicate an incurable soul or assert our own success. Every person longs for peace. The question is whether or not you're looking for it in the right place place. Some of you are here today, you're not yet a Christian. I pray that today would be the day when you find peace in Jesus. Secondly, not only be careful where you look for peace, secondly, rejoice that every hardship, including discipline, every hardship, including discipline, is a part of God's kindness to you. Isaiah is making it abundantly clear that these difficulties are from God. They're a part of his plan to soften the hearts of his people and get their attention. They don't even know how far they've strayed. And God is attempting to win them back. Yes, he's throwing them and thrashing them, but that's so that the chaff will be blown away. Yes, he's plowing in their lives, but God is in the business of winning back hardened hearts. And sometimes he has to use hard circumstances in order to get our attention. For some of you, that's exactly what's going on in your life right now. And listen to God isn't punishing you. He's loving you. He's coming after you. And third, oh church, let us marvel at God's intervention despite our constant rebellion. To marvel at God's intervention despite our rebellion. The more I understand about me, the more I understand about the Bible, the more I understand about people, the more convinced I am that if it was up to me, if it was up to you, if it was up to our ingenuity or our ability to self-diagnose correctly, we would be utterly helpless. The miracle of the gospel is that Jesus rescues us from ourselves. He rescues us from the path of self-destruction. Think, Christian, where you would be today were it not for the mercy and the intervention of Christ. He saved you from you. Wow. And listen, this is the peace that everyone longs for. So let the Prince of Peace be your peace today. Let the city of God, not the city of man, be your heart's delight. Embrace these hopeful words From the prophet Isaiah, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us to trust in you. We need your grace today because we are constantly seeking peace in all of the wrong places And, O risen Christ, we ask you to make us a people who not only know you, but a people who know 
the traps of false peace. Lord, we turn from them even now. We're reminded that our hearts are prone to wander, seeking peace in all the wrong places. And so now, Prince of Peace, satisfy us, we pray, as we sing together, being reminded of an ama- what an amazing God and how powerful your grace really is. We pray this in Jesus' name.